Hello, Acapella Radio. Welcome to another exciting episode of Talk Acapella. It's a podcast for the acapella community where we examine the culture as well as the ins and outs of vocal music, along with the people who are working to shape it. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Alexander. We are still having a little bit of a hiatus for our other co-host, Alicia, but we move on in her absence. And tonight we have a wonderful show lined up for our listeners out there today. We have a great, great guest joining us tonight, and he has come with quite the impression of background and resume in acapella. He's done some singing at the collegiate level, some singing at the pro level, and now he's doing even more incredible things on the recording, the production side, and even has his own business that we're going to be talking about tonight. He is none other than the owner, founder, and executive producer of Voices Only. We are welcoming Corey Slutsky to the show. Corey, how are you doing tonight? Hey, hey, I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing great, man. It's a so far a great week. Uh, everything's going well. How about yourself? I can't complain, or I'll choose not to at least. <laughs> that, that's probably the best way to put that right there. You know, I'm sure we could find something, but, you know, it's all about that mentality, that optimism right now. So got to stay positive right now. Right. I hear you. So we want to thank you so much for joining us tonight. You're based out of Detroit, which is a place I'm not too terribly familiar with, but I just know it gets cold out there. So that's about all I got for you on Detroit. It's Motown, baby. Motown. Oh, good point. How could I forget that? You know, okay. Shame First on me. I can't, claim, I can't claim to be a music person if I didn't remember <laughs> that. So I apologize. It's all good. But uh, as mentioned, we are so excited to have you on the show tonight, man. We got some great conversations, some things we want to bring up with you, but uh, we're going to start here. So you've been involved in acapella for more than 20 years and you've done it all from performing to judging competitions and everything in between. What do you remember most from your early days of acapella? Ooh, that's not a question I've been asked before. What do I remember from my <laughs> nice. early days? I remember family. I remember being with people I loved being with and doing something I loved doing. You're making me go way back to try and think <laughs> of my early days. We're talking late 90s. We got to catch our guests off guard here. I remember not so legally downloading as much acapella as I could find. Ooh, that's what, what, what I are we talking? LimeWire, Napster? What, what do we got here? You hit the two big ones. Finding <laughs> all the songs that were labeled as rockapella that were not rockapella. <laughs> I've had experience with that before, so I know what you mean. Yeah. So the early days of downloading, we'll call it somewhat questionable acapella music. So yeah, I think we've all been guilty of that. So that's an interesting place to start. But also, <laughs> you've been involved in two really big uh, collegiate groups. If we're also looking back at your earlier days, SoCal Vocals and the G-Man, which are two groups still doing great things in the community. So when you think back to your time on those campuses, do you recall there being that same like high standard of like musical excellence that we know the groups that they possess today? Yes and no. So we can start with the G-Men because that's where I started for this conversation. We were just trying to stay afloat at that point. It was not the vocal excellence that we're accustomed to with the G-Men now. Not to say that we were bad in any way, but mm -hmm. we were not the award-winning ICCA finalist type of group at that point. The group actually almost folded right when I joined. Wow. And people, I've heard people say that I'm the founder and I, and that's definitely not the case. But I joined in the spring, right as the school year was ending. And then there was this mass exodus over the summer of people graduating, people not wanting to come back to the group. So when we started in the fall, there were only three of us. And we actually right. sat down and had a conversation. Do we fold or do we keep it going? And the three of us decided to keep it going. And we got six freshmen that were all really, really amazing. And if it wasn't for that decision, we wouldn't know the G-Men as it is now. The group started as the gentlemen and we were the okay. gentlemen 
Island when I joined. And we actually, within our group, did a renaming contest. And we had some <laughs> ridiculous names that were not associated with gentlemen at all. Oh, I got to hear this. What, I, I don't I don't remember any of them. Oh, okay. I mean, there were, you, you have to think musical puns, Michigan <laughs> oh, course, puns, yeah. maize and blue puns, everything, the kinds of things that I'm sure Deke Sharon could say, the ridiculous kinds of puns. But <laughs> yeah. we ended up just sticking with the gentlemen and we just made the G-men for short. And mm-hmm. now it, they're still the gentlemen, but it's the G-men. Interesting. I don't think I've really quite put that together, what the G stood for. So it's thank you for that. the gentleman. The gentleman. Oh, man, catchy. I get it. So with it being the gentleman, what were we talking in terms of attire? Were you guys like actually performing in suits or is it casual work for college students? We did both. So what we did usually was we had an intermission in our shows. The first half, we'd be in suits or shirts and ties. And then the second half, we'd be in something looser. At some point in my time there, we brought what everyone knows now for the GMN as the soccer jerseys. Oh, okay. We decided to bring that in. I think that was probably 99 or 2000. And so we'd come out in our suits for the first half, and then we'd put on our soccer jerseys for the second half. Interesting. I like that. I like that choice. Lots of style. When when I started with the group, it was your typical late 90s acapella, not a ton of creativity out of most places. And so on Michigan's campus, there were 16 groups at the time, and it was Amazing oh. Blue and everybody else. Everybody okay. wanted to make him be amazing blue it was like it was a top echelon for sure so mm-hmm. we decided to create our own identity i'd say this was probably 2000 99 2000 where we were just going to be we were going to be the fun group not the frat type of group but yeah. party on stage we, we we were definitely not the best musically it's not even a question but you came <laughs> to see us and you knew you were gonna have a good time right the entertainment factor yeah i like that so that's really cool man and so i think that sets it up in a very interesting way when i look at the socal vocals and you were being a member of that i get something completely different when i think about the socal vocals so how was that transition it was a little bit of a transition when i joined the socal vocals they worked this rock party in your face type of group not to say there wasn't the vocal excellence because there absolutely was the vocal excellence we were getting on boca regularly our shows were great things like that but it was we branded ourselves as a party on stage Mm -hmm. that's what you came to see and so it was a bit different in that there was a higher level of excellence expected than the g-men when I was in the G-Men anyway. And it was fun. It was definitely a tight-knit group. We partied together. We hung out together all the time. My last year in the group is when we, our founder, Brock Harris, invested in this amazing historical house near USC's campus. Ah, and so yeah. that became the SoCal Vocal House, if anyone's been there in LA. And I was the first resident to live there. I lived there by myself for really? six months in this giant wow. like eight-bedroom <laughs> mansion while it was going under renovation. There were no locks on the doors. It was a little scary at times. Times, but L- little sketch, yeah. So yeah, by that time, everyone, that's where we did everything. So the vocals were always together almost mm-hmm. all the time at the house. Man, I am jealous just to think of what life as a college student in a mansion to themselves for six months. That must have been quite the experience. Wow. It was a mansion right off the USC campus, which at that time was not a safe place. Oh, really? It's built up a lot now, but there were okay. there were no restaurants. There, were, there was like a Burger King. It was not a safe place. Okay. See, I'm, I'm a bit unfamiliar with, because I've never been on USC. Yeah. No, I've never been on USC campus. I, did, I have no idea in terms of perspective what's that like, but just... Now hearing that. Yeah, when I was there in the mid 2000s, and I'm sure it was like this before that, but it was like this beautiful, serene campus in the middle Mm -hmm. of, of, for all intents and purposes, what you would picture as South Central LA when you see that kind of thing in the movies 
where it's like yeah. not ghetto, but it's it's not exactly USC is is a lot of wealthy children, children of wealthy right. parents. So <laughs> so to stick them in the middle of this rundown area is very interesting. Oh yeah, definitely a, a, a culture shot for sure. The group had just come off of several years in a row of semifinals mm-hmm. in the ICCA. I knew when I went to USC that I wanted to be in the SoCal Vocals. That was obviously mm-hmm. the goal. Was it a fairly, I, I guess, easygoing process to to be accepted? Did you stress at all about it in terms of trying to get into the group? I don't remember it being stressful in any way. The auditions were relatively easy for me. I went in, obviously, as a vocalist, but I was also a vocal percussionist. And this was before now groups take people as vocal percussionists. Back Mm -hmm. then, it was singers and somebody did the vocal percussion. But I had years of experience doing vocal percussion in the G-Men. And I was in another group at Michigan called Kol Haka Vode. And I had sang professionally with Street Nicks doing, I wasn't really doing percussion, but I did a little bit. And so I went in and I, I wrote it down that I did vocal percussion. And so they had me do it at my audition oh okay and so the callbacks were for me were really low stress and really easy (laughs) because they didn't have me sing at all during callbacks so we did two songs and vp'd for essentially everybody else's callbacks because they i'm sure they listened to me a little bit but i think Mm -hmm. at that point I'm assuming they already knew that they wanted to bring me on as a vocal percussionist. So they were yeah. just paying attention to everyone else. So I must have done the same vocal percussion for the same two songs, I don't know, 50 times in that hour <laughs> or two so that they could hear all the other groupings of the callback people and the current members. There's a lot of spit. I can only imagine. Right. And this is pre everyone being handheld mic. So I had to project. Oh, boy. Okay. Shower works ever, like everywhere. Okay, I get it. I'm getting the visual picture now. Yes. That's so interesting. And, and I'm curious because you mentioned the aspect of the group was already, you know, making the semis, the ICCA and things like that. As far as you can remember, was the idea of competition and acapella as crazy as it is today? Because I know that's just, that's the big thing right now. Everyone's like, okay, how do I get to that next level to compete at ICCA? Back in the early 2000s, what was that atmosphere like? Not even in the slightest. Competition, okay. at least in my perspective of what was going on. Obviously, I can't speak for what other people were experiencing, but in my experience, ICCA was just something that you did. It was just part of your year. You didn't plan for it, right? Mm -hmm. Now groups think about they're set in the fall right after they've got auditions. They're, they're arranging songs specifically for their ICCA or IHSA set. Right. It was not, for anyone listening who wasn't around in acapella at those days, that was not the way it worked. You, you picked your repertoire for the year, your 10 to 12 songs, and then, I don't know, when you came back to school in January, you picked the three songs out of your repertoire. You picked a fast okay. song, a ballad, and then a showstopper. Okay. Yeah. yeah, and that's just the way you did it. I remember when we were thinking about it, it was partly who are our best soloists we're going to pick those Mm -hmm. songs or which ones do we know really well what's interesting for me is that for my five years no my four years of singing acapella in undergrad my two years of singing acapella in grad school i've never competed in an icca really for the vocals Hmm. the g-men just never got in the vocals (laughs) they were coming off of i don't know how many years of winning their regionals and not placing at their semis. And this goes Mm -hmm. back to a day when most of your winners were all male or all female groups. Co-ed was Mm -hmm. not the big thing at that time in terms of the best groups across the country. Yeah, that's so interesting just to think about because I I think about the last few years of ICCA and stuff. And that's just, I I know like one off the top of my head was like an all-male group, you know, with the tectonics, but it's been mostly co-ed. That's interesting how that kind of played out. 
Yeah. So the members that were returning from the year before, there were only it was only me and one other person that were new that first, my first year, they were exhausted of it. They were tired of constantly losing. And I, I can only speak for what I heard from them. I can't speak for their actual feelings. I think they, they didn't feel a prejudice towards co-ed groups, but they felt, I think that they needed a break. They were tired of putting so much into it and mm-hmm. constantly losing to all male and all female groups. Cause you, you're talking about the men's octet from Berkeley, which was a powerhouse. You right. had all the groups yeah. at Stanford in the West. You had BYU, Noteworthy, Oregon to VC. I mean, the, the female groups that you know that are powerhouses. And so for my two years in the vocals, it was a choice not to compete. We hosted both years. Yeah. And so I was there and I was performing, but it wasn't a competition. And for me, being a vocal percussionist, one of my goals as an acapella performer was to win that ICCA Best VP <laughs> Award. And I never even got the opportunity. No, man. So I kind of yeah. want I kind of want Amanda Newman to give me a what's what's the word? Kind of like a I like an honorary a recognition. Yeah, an oh, honorary. I so get what you're saying. Man, I feel like that's that's gotta be the crowning achievement of most vocal percussionists of collegiate acapella. Like, how do you get that outstanding VP award? That's man, they robbed you. Man. I, There's no saying if I would have won or anything like that, but it would have oh, liked to have had the chance. Oh, I'm I'm sure. I'm sure you would have definitely uh, been a top two candidate for sure, easily. Maybe back uh, then. Not now. Not so much. That is so interesting, man. Just kind of learning about that dynamic of way, you know, just the mindset of acapella. That's a really interesting point to kind of just be touching on because as somebody who's been in the game for so many years now, I feel like you are the perfect gauge and thermometer of just really looking at where we've been and kind of where we are now. So for me, there's been like a great deal of discovery and like acapella as a whole, especially when you compare where it was in the 90s to where it currently stands. As someone who kind of wrote that wave of growth and change, what are your thoughts like on the modern sound of acapella? Do you find yourself like missing at all that purest feel that it once used to have or or are you happy with where we're at now? It's funny. I'll answer the question first and give my long-winded answer second. As a producer of vocal music, I love the w- the way it's going. I don't love hearing the inconsistencies. So I enjoy the tune sound, not the overtune sound, but the tune sound, which is funny because when I was in the G-Men, we had this debate in the group of, there was a divide in the group of the purists and the not purists. And this is really before we had all the software that we have now when you can do all that crazy tuning. If you go back and listen to the early bokas of the late 90s, nothing's tuned on there. This was before Bill mm-hmm. Hare invented tuning, right? <laughs> yeah. So I was a purist. I was mm-hmm. acapella needs to be only voices, no effects, no microphones on stage. And at some point, I don't know if it was, I couldn't tell you if it was when I started singing professionally and we were using mics or not, but, or I just started hearing all the advanced technologies that you could do, but I, I definitely shifted hardcore into the not pure sound. I remember a college student at one point wanted to submit for the voice only compilation and hated it because he was such a purist. And I don't Mm. know, I don't remember if we got in this debate. In my mind, it was Evan Feist, but I don't know if it was actually him or not because it it was definitely from the group that he was in my mind it was him we're friends now but <laughs> i just remember who is this this kid who thinks he knows everything right where's this guy come from yeah that's interesting you mentioned inconsistency so i wonder if you could elaborate what kind of inconsistency do you feel it's kind of going on with music in acapella right now probably not the right word i think i was just thinking of the out of tune okay. not perfect sound it's jarring to my ears when i hear 
recorded acapella that hasn't been studio produced because I'm so okay. used to it at this point. If I'm hearing it live or a YouTube video or something, I think maybe my brain's expecting it not to be perfect. But when something is quote unquote recorded in a studio or whatever, and it's not tuned, it's almost like, where did that come from? <laughs> mm, okay. So it's more of a kind of a, a personal taste kind of element has that element to it i guess, I, guess. I think the expectation okay. now is that it's going to be perfect oh right you know with melodyne and everything else going on it's hard not to just want that and expect it for sure and it's interesting that you bring up recording so that's a, a big part of what you do these days is recording how, how exactly did you get into it what led you to recording did you think that you'd still be doing it after all these years after you got into it i kind of got into recording by happenstance so I graduated from the vocals and from USC and went into the corporate world and worked in television, was an executive type person. And mm -hmm. at some point, so I had seen Mike Tompkins doing his one man acapella videos. Okay. And I said, I want to do that, but I have no idea how to do that. I mean, I've seen the people who have produced the vocals albums and the G-Man albums. Yeah, I was fortunate enough to record with Gabriel Mann when he was oh, doing nice. acapella. And so I got to watch him work. But I wanted to record my own one-man EP. Okay. At that point, I had I had been doing the compilations four, five, six years at that point. And so I was connected to all the producers in some mm -hmm. fashion. I had been emailing and talking with Bill Hare and Deke and James Cannon and Ed Boyer and Dave Sperandio and Tat Tong and all these people who were the, the main people, Alex Green, and basically said, help me. How do I do this? What equipment do I buy? How do I learn how to do this? And they mm -hmm. basically walked me through everything. And I just learned by trial. So my first recordings were terrible. I would start the recording right when I'd start singing and stop it right when I'd stop singing. And oh, I had to have man. someone tell me that you need to start before that. I'd try and cut things right <laughs> in and out live mm -hmm. as I'm recording it. And so I just kind of taught myself how to record. I have no background in it. I didn't study it in school. And so I bought Pro Tools. I bought some equipment. I got a new computer and I just started recording myself and would send it off to the other people and get feedback and figure out how to do things. And wow, so, so, yeah. Yeah. And then I got good enough at it where I felt comfortable recording other people. So I started mm -hmm. recording some groups in LA. Like I recorded the USC Sirens. I recorded the USC Troy Tones, UCLA Signature for pay as a side oh, hustle. Of course. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just doing it as a side gig for four or five years. Wow. Okay. So it was a real trial by fire, but then you also had that cool support, just like that networking that just kind of helped out. So, yeah. Which that networking yeah. still exists and you can still ask these people all these questions. Mm -hmm. My barrier to entry was easier because I knew them in some fashion already and felt comfortable asking them because I was not a colleague, but I was kind of on equal footing because I was a name and a brand in the acapella community as doing the compilations. Okay. I'm curious, just listening to all this, something I've never really thought about, but I noticed that so many people that are typically involved or have past experience in acapella, they find their way to at least having some kind of working knowledge of recording or things of that nature. I'm curious, do you feel at all that it kind of gives you a leg up to be involved in acapella when it comes to just that knowledge of recording or just kind of being around, you know, that all vocal music and paying attention so much to the voice. Do you feel that helps at all in terms of finding your way to recording music or maybe not at all? Or just like, no, you would have probably just found a way whether you were in acapella or not if you love music predisposed to want to do more things with music if you're already in it, mm -hmm. I think. With acapella, 
at least in the past, still very much so today, but in the past especially, recording was just part of what you did in an acapella group. Okay. So back in the 90s and the 2000s, and obviously it still exists today, but not at the same level, you recorded every two, three, four years. It's just something you did. Every group did it. Really? Right? So the, the, the hobby groups weren't as prominent, I guess, back then, that groups that just wanted to do it for fun and like you're, like just that entertainment value, even they were just like, no, we have a set thing where we need to record every few years. Yeah. And it wasn't even so much a need thing, but it was so accessible because this was before streaming music, right? Mm -hmm. So this was when people bought music. So a college group, obviously to get that first one off the ground was a little bit more difficult, but once you had a physical product, you could sell it. And most groups, they earmarked those funds to go to the next one. So you you made a Mm. CD, then you would sell it at your shows, you would go on tour in the spring and you'd sell it on tour, and then you'd have the funds to go and record another one. And this was just that cycle that happened. Some groups could do it every year, every two, some every four, but it was was just part of the expectation, just like an end of semester concert is, was we're going to record. Right. That's so interesting just to kind of think about the mentality because there's been a lot of, I know a lot more groups are doing it today, obviously, but I think in my experience, I've met quite a bit of people who who are in groups and their thought has never once been, okay, let's think about recording. I remember even in some of the groups I've been a part of that there was even some pushback on whether we needed to record, why waste the money kind of thing. It's just, you know, it's more about the experience. So it's interesting how that arc has kind of possibly shifted in smaller circles. That's interesting that you mentioned, why do we need to record? Because Mm -hmm. we never felt like we needed to record. We wanted to record, right? I mean, this is also before this is you know I'm dating myself this is before you had <laughs> cameras on your phones and things like that so you couldn't just record everything all the time if you wanted Good a video point, of your yeah. concert you needed to set up a camera on a tripod in the back of wherever you were performing or have somebody man it or do you have to bring someone's girlfriend or boyfriend or something along <laughs> to run the camera yeah but you I wanted to go to a studio we all did or we wanted to have a physical CD that represented our time in the group, which is where the term yearbook album came from. Okay. You, you did that yeah. album of the 10 songs you did that year, and it was a snapshot of the group for that year. It was your yearbook album. I don't know if that yeah. still exists in the in the sense of the wanting to record as opposed to the need to record. I don't know if groups are saying we need to record so that we can compete for the Cara Awards or so that we can compete for Voices Only in Boca or because other groups are doing it. Or if it's more of, this is where I'm only in this group for two years, three years, four years. I want some kind of vocal recording. Yeah, Mm -hmm. we've got videos of our concerts, but those are imperfect. I want something that has that difference. And at least back then, a CD was a lot more easily shareable than a VHS recording of your concert (laughs) that you have to fast forward and rewind through, right? Nobody wants that, except for the people- Except for the people in the group and the parents. Oh, of course. Yeah. Someone's grandma, of course, somebody's parents. They needed the memories for the scrapbook and the albums and stuff like that. I don't know um, why I don't know why any group wouldn't want to record. I, 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 underst- I, I understand the funding issue. I think that's a bigger mm-hmm. issue now than it was back then because you get a little bit of income from streaming, but groups aren't being able to fund their next album with the one they just made. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of that mix that you were talking about in terms of, you know, it goes to the group's intent and the individual's intent because for me there were a lot of people in the group that they were just like well this year we can either choose to go and do competition or we can focus on an album or we can't do both and it's just the people it's really based on the people and i do want to continue this conversation but unfortunately we do have to take a quick commercial break but don't go anywhere we've been speaking with Corey slutsky voices only and 
we're going to continue speaking with him right every week for an hour we hand over the keys to the station to wait is that right the listeners it's true you our listeners can choose what we play for our requests and dedications hour you can catch it every thursday at 9 p.m in the east 6 p.m pacific and then again on sundays at 5 a.m and 5 p.m east 2 a.m. and 2 p.m. in the West. It's a chance for you to head to our website, pick some tunes that you want to request, or make a dedication. We'll play them right here on our air. And welcome back to Tacapella. That's right. We've been speaking with Corey Slutsky, Voices Only. We've been learning all about his background in collegiate acapella, his professional experience. We've been speaking about recording, even the landscape of how acapella has kind of shifted. And that's what we're exactly what we were talking about right before the break. We were having this conversation about a group's desire to want to record music, which is interesting because it, it all really goes to the intent of the individual members. Sometimes they, they feel a need to out of preservation of history, maybe, or just they feel like, hey, it's what other groups are doing. It's something that we need to work towards. And I, I find it really just interesting because Corey was talking about all these different facets. And I was thinking, man, it's really just a mix. At the end of the day, there's so many different reasons why I know a lot of groups, you know, you can't fathom not wanting to record. It's part of the acapella experience these days. And I was saying for for me personally, our group, we were choosing, you know, we had to make a choice between competition or recording an album. It was hard to devote money, energy, time between the two. And so I didn't know if you had any additional thoughts on, you know, why why groups should record, because I feel like that's something that's really helping the exposure of acapella is just having that access to music. So any additional thoughts on that at all? When you were in the groups, were your decisions to not record and to do competition anything other than financial? No, I think it was primarily financial. I was (laughs) going to say, because if you take the finances aside and you have enough buy-in from all the members that want to put that commitment into the group, because Mm -hmm. obviously sometimes you have groups where you have three, four, five members that are just in it for fun and they don't care about the competition or the recording. They just want to go sing with their friends. You have the time. People think recording is this big daunting thing. And for the music director, it is because they have to do all the work. But (laughs) for the people in the group, you just need to show up and sing your part. It's not Mm. a huge time commitment for the average member. What I usually run into is when I talk to groups, it's very much an excitement about recording. And then Mm. they find out, I don't know what's in their mind about what it's going to cost because I'll email groups and I'll hear back. We would love this opportunity. Let's do it. How much does it cost? And then I tell them and they say, oh, we don't have any money. Yeah. And so I don't know if that was, they were hoping it was going to be $100 or something like that to do a song. <laughs> I, I, and they're like, oh, exact- we could probably scrounge that up. And then they just say, we don't have any money. Or mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know what the thought process is. I think that's exactly the thought when you're getting in the mind of a poor college student. It's like 100 bucks even sounds crazy. I'm like, that's like four trips to the plasma center at the end of the day. So I'm like, that's quite excessive. But for me, I was, I was the one that did all the research in terms of scouting different production companies to work with and there were some numbers and figures coming back it's like there's no way we could afford this so this is all us raising money grassroots kickstarter type campaigns and having a few thousand bucks and who would be willing to work with us and we ended up deciding on a local in-home studio 
because one of the guys in our group knew of a recording uh, place nearby. So I think that's See, what it, I a think, lot of it comes down to. I think that's the biggest mistake groups make when it comes to recording. No disrespect to the local studio, but acapella mm-hmm. is a different beast when it comes to recording. It, you can't approach yeah. it the same way as you would a band with instruments. Mm-hmm. And so what I tell groups when they find out that something is too expensive or they're just going to record with the local studio, and I don't mind sharing this, it's not a secret, I tell them that they're burning their money. If that's what you're going to do, because groups still do go into a local studio and have all 16 people around 16 mics in a circle and they run through three takes of their song and the person running the session takes one take with the best take and there's no tuning, there's very little mixing involved and that's it. I tell them don't waste their money. Most groups these days have someone to come mix their live shows and almost all those people have the equipment to record that show. So I tell them instead of spending three grand on a 10 song album at local studio A, your live mixing engineer will charge you $600 to record your set and put it out as a live CD or a live album. Because when you say the sound quality of that local studio A is going to sound like a live album anyway, because it's not going to be in tune. It's not going to be in time. There's going to be very little mixing, except you've lost that adrenaline and energy that you had in your live performance, that's going to sound better than your recording in your studio. So when you're saying this, are you referring to use the live engineers to record that live set or just maybe after the show, go somewhere and record that set? Which which are we referring to? Record the concert as it's happening. Oh, Because they hmm. all almost all of them have that ability. It's going to cost you way less It's easy work for the engineer because everything's set up. They don't have to do anything. So they'll take a much lower payday on that. And you're going to get a better product, most likely, than you would going into your local studio and spending more money. That's interesting. I don't know if a lot of people really kind of fathom that just to think, hey, we're going to record what we're doing live at a concert. Because a lot of times what you find, at least me, I've gone out and I've watched these groups perform 100 times and then I'll go look at their album. I'm like, I've never seen that song ever covered live by you all and a lot of groups are doing these arrangements that are meant for the studio versus meant Mm -hmm. for a live performance right so that's interesting and then i think also on the other side of that is you hear about the big names you hear about the the corey slutskis you hear about the dave sparandios and you hear about bill harris and stuff and you're like i want to work with those people and as you're saying you know if you're not going to use utilize one of these people it's almost not worth it almost because you're not getting someone who understands the art that's the the key it doesn't have to be a corey slutsky or a bill Hare or dave sparandio there are plenty of up-and-coming engineers that either understudied over one of us when their group was recording with us and picked our brains or someone that's been playing with equipment on the side and learning things. And those people obviously have a lower cost of entry for you. But I, again, it's no no disrespect to the live studio, but if you want to record something a cappella, I wouldn't do that. I'd either save up the money to record with someone who knows what they're doing or record your live show. Okay. And the money issue, which I get all that all the time where, oh man, we really want to record, but we don't have any money, so we can't. (laughs) Which just doesn't compute in my brain because if it's something you want to do, the money's out there. You just have to figure out how to get it. And for, I don't know, five, six, seven years now, I've seen groups fund $15,000 albums on Kickstarter. Really? It's super easy if you just put in the legwork. 
I mean, right. even if you're doing bake sales or ticket sales at your concerts or date auctions or whatever you can do to raise money, and you also don't need to do it right then, right? If a group's like, I want, we want to record this year, but we don't have any money, set it as a goal for next year and start fundraising now. The other biggest mistake that I see groups doing, and maybe this is just me, but all I see groups do is put up GoFundMes for recording or for ICCA mm -hmm. travel, which I get for ICCA travel, things like that. But you're going to get more people willing to donate if they get something in return. This is I not agree. what GoFundMe was set up for. GoFundMe was set up for people who needed money for medical expenses or the emergency type things that they need. Not that it shouldn't be used for this, but there's nothing in return. So yeah, you might get a couple hundred dollars from parents and friends and things like that. But if you do a Kickstarter or an Indiegogo mm -hmm. with a pre-release of your album or a special early digital single or a social media shout out or a name on your liner notes or the name on a video. There's all kinds of things people will give you, especially if people want to consume your media anyway, whether it's streaming or buying it, they're more likely to give you $20 if you're giving them an early release of your album than to just say, please give us $20 on our GoFundMe. Yeah, that's what I love about the idea of like a Kickstarter because it just it goes so well. It complements performance groups so well. You have something to offer out there versus like you're saying a GoFundMe. That's for somebody who might not be able to give something naturally to other people. I don't is, know if the college students now just don't know about Kickstarter and Indiegogo and they just know GoFundMe. I don't yeah, know. I, I felt like it was huge back when I was in a group, but, you know, 2008 to 2012. It was big. That's what everyone's doing. But now, like you said, I see, I can't remember the last time I've heard of any group doing Kickstarter. I, I see GoFundMe all the time. So I don't know what's going on basically i don't know so, it's obviously less work because you just throw it up there you don't have to come yeah. up with all the rewards yeah i think groups they can challenge themselves to be a little bit more creative so especially since they, these are creative people these are performers <laughs> exactly. they're art they're, art they're artists right right it should be second nature exactly interesting so let's shift a little bit since uh we're talking about production a little bit we're talking about recording i think this is a perfect segue now to talk about voices only and i think it's important to recognize that we're not simply talking about recorded music when we're talking about voices only voices only is a one-stop shop for all things acapella both in a studio and live so for you working at voices only and being the founder what's a typical day look like for you at voices only a typical day is usually in my studio sitting in front of the computer editing music oh really yeah okay. it, it's tedious work that nobody else wants to do that i love <laughs> doing i love having melodyne open and plugging away fixing people's tuning and timing and syncing out all the mm -hmm. percussion and boosting that. that obviously like on, on yeah. <laughs> top of all of the running, the day-to-day -day of running a business, right? Responding mm -hmm. to emails, doing research, social media, all that good stuff. So talk to me a little bit about the additional services because a typical day for you is, you know, doing the recording process, but Voices Only, they offer the workshops, they offer, you know, helping groups with strengthening their sound, maybe working on even some of the business stuff. What are some of those things outside of recording that Voices only offers to groups. Right. So I think the obvious first one after that is arranging services. I have two amazing, amazing young arrangers that I have arranging on my staff. And so they're always available and willing and excited to do personal custom arrangements. Okay. And then, yeah, master classes and workshops. Going back to the 2000s, I've been master classing and teaching at all of the acapella festivals that you can name. But I love doing the one-on-ones, especially the ICCA and ICHSA sets. Obviously, this year is different. But in the past, right. I'll do in-person and virtual 
coachings. And by that, I mean, I'm not designing your set. I wait till the group has their performance down. And then usually the way I do it is I tell them to record their set, send it to me. I critique it in my own time so I can really absorb what's going on. And then we do an in-person workshop and I bring my ideas to you and we tinker and we play and we usually come up with things on the fly. Some of my favorite things that I've done with groups has been we're playing in their rehearsal space and something just pops in my head or pops in their head and we play with it and it's just like you I watch it whether it's vocal or visual and it's just like oh my god that works <laughs> so amazing you have to incorporate that in your set that aha moment yes In addition to the studio stuff, I love working with the groups and watching the creative process and tinkering and bringing my expertise to what they've crafted. So it's kind of helping them to just kind of bring that idea full circle at the end of the day, even more than just fine tuning something. It's like, I know this is what you're going for and you're just kind of help pulling that out. Right. Yeah. I think the the biggest difficulty groups have, especially music directors and arrangers, is they're so intimately involved with their choices in their music Mm -hmm. that it's hard to step outside, right, and see things from an objective perspective and a blank canvas. And that's why having somebody else come in, whether it's me or not, come in and bring an outside perspective, we'll see things that the people in the group aren't going to see because they're, especially in a ranger, right? Yeah. That's not to go off too far on a tangent, but one of the things that I love working, playing around in the studio is finding new ways to enhance that arrangement and add things. So okay. we do that live in workshop and master classes too. Something I've been curious about, just thinking about in terms of master classes and someone like you who works one-on-one with groups. And a lot of times, as you mentioned, it's for competition. When a group brings like a set to you or brings arrangements to you, does it have that feel of they're primarily focused focused on how, what, let me say again, they're primarily focused on what they're presenting, how it will be received by a judge or in terms of competition, or is it more for, you know, how can we create that art? How can we create the best art possible? Is that something that ever comes up in the discussions that you're having when you're doing master classes or workshops? A little bit when it's competition specific. Okay. So if they're bringing me in to work on their ICCA or ICHSA set, then we're thinking about things in terms of that competition. And every competition is different. The nice thing about varsity vocals is their scoring rubric is public. So right. we, we yeah. know, I think this is in terms of those two competitions, I think that's a big mistake groups make is they're not crafting their sound and their set and their visuals to the rubric. Okay. Right. If your goal is to just make the best music possible and hope that you win, that's amazing. But if mm-hmm. your goal is to win ICC or ICHSA, you you need to be thinking about what they're judging on because that may- that's what they're that's the scoring. Right. That's part. It's part of the whole organization and contest. That's exactly what you signed up for. I get that. Right. Yeah. That's fair or not. That's the competition. It's not a competition for who's the best group in college acapella. Mm-hmm. It's who's the best group for this competition for this scoring rubric for mm-hmm. this particular thing. Right. And so you being someone who has judged these events before, I think it's something that we, I think from an outside external perspective, we realize that there is, even with a score sheet, there's a level of subjectivity kind of comes with it. Of course, you're basing a lot of this on technicalities and you have the number system. I've seen the score sheets before, but for you, what do you dial in on? Because it's easy to say, hey, you can get a 10 for accuracy, you can get a 10 for pitch, whatever the case is. But then how do you score when someone brings, you know, like a spoken word? 
or bring something you've never seen before. Where does all of that kind of fall with you as a judge? How does that enhance the score? That's a hard question to answer just because every judge is different and they're all looking for something different. So I can say for me, it's about connection to the audience and entertainment value. That's usually what I connect with. Okay. The person sitting next to me will be looking for something completely different. Now, usually at these competitions, the group that is, I don't want to say the most entertaining, but it's rare that there's a surprise winner, right? Mm, it's, right. I think, usually, especially at the lower level, at the regional levels, there's usually a separation. It's usually pretty, obviously, when you get to the finals and sometimes the semifinals, there's so little difference in terms of the quality that it's yeah. completely subjective, but... No, I, I get what you're saying, but I can see how it's very obvious, like you're saying, at the regional level, because for lack, trying to say this nice way as I possibly can, but some groups are just more technically sound than other groups, and it's going to stand down the regional level. But then you get to the finals where you're getting the best from each region, and there's got to be something that distinguishes these groups from one another, or else no one would... We end with a tie if everyone is just scoring high at the end of the day in terms of technicalities, so... Yeah, there's something there obviously going on. And I guess it just comes down to, like you said, for you, it's about the connection. And you hope that enough of the judges are thinking of something. They're they're on the same page when it comes to something. And that's how, I guess, something of winners chosen, maybe. I don't yeah, know. I'm there's, to... I mean, usually there's all, however many groups at the finals aren't all equal in terms of talent and quality. They're, mm -hmm. It's going to be tiered and usually the best wins. But there's also the creativity factor. There's been a shift. I think it's shifted away a little bit, but there's definitely been a shift in the ICCA competition, especially into the set having a theme, right? Yeah. There's a story that arcs through the whole thing. I can only speak for myself, right? but yeah. I, for me as a judge, that doesn't matter. Because to be honest, in those 12 minutes, I don't even have the bandwidth in my brain to think about that <laughs> when I'm trying to watch you and listen to you and look down at my score sheet to write things and circle things and listen to your tuning and your blend and your intonation and watch your professionalism and all these things. So I'll talk to groups after and they'll say, they'll ask like, did, did our theme come through? Did you get it? Whether I'm just a judge or, or a bystander, an audience member. And at least I know other people will say, absolutely or that's what I'm looking for. I know judges that that's specifically what they're looking for. They want that connection throughout the set. Yeah. For me, I want to I want to be pulled into your performance. I want to be entertained. I want to hear quality singing and quality visuals. When I'm judging, I don't have the the capacity to notice that or think about that. Maybe I'm not as bright as other people. And that's fine, <laughs> but... I'm like, at the end of the day, we're talking about 12-minute sets from how many groups? Like 15 or whatever the case is, or... Right, and I don't, so, and I, yeah. I'm not allowed to just sit there and watch it and experience it because I have to be mm -hmm. thinking about all these things and I have to be writing. That's a good point. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, I, I can get that for sure. Man, okay. Well, I, I had to ask. I needed to get a further understanding from oh, someone sure. who's been there. This is interesting, and I'm thinking about so much more. I'll be thinking about a lot more as I watch more of ICCA stuff, but groups, something groups else I want... Th groups think about it from their perspective, which makes yeah. sense, obviously, but there's no thought process into what is the judge looking for and what do they have the capability to experience. Right. Yeah, because I, I remember we I performed in one ICCA event during my collegiate years just because we only went one year while I was in the group and we wrecked our brains so much on this is what we were aiming for and how much of it came across. And you read the score sheet and you're just like, I don't know if they really saw the same thing that we saw. But at the end of the day, it's it's art. It's objective. So when I you know. when I 
telegroups that I'm workshopping with and they've got all these little things going on, usually visually, I try and simplify because mm. especially things happen so fast and the choreographer is usually really excited about those little things. Yeah. But maybe one or two judges will even have their face up to see it. <laughs> oh no. And it's this little tiny thing in a 12 minute set. So focus, simplify and focus on the big picture. Okay. Less is more. Okay. You heard him right there. Less is more. That's what we're going for. So we have just a couple minutes left. And another aspect I want to talk about is probably one of the bigger things that a lot of people probably know voices only for is you all's compilation albums. I love them. I, I think my first exposure to the voices only albums was 2010. While I was familiar at that time with Boca and Casa Sing albums, there was something just different about voices only. I think what I loved about it was its depth in terms of like featuring originals and less popular songs. And to me that it succeeds in kind of bringing that exposure to the community of all these different groups. For you, this is kind of a two part question. What was it like just convincing groups to become, get involved and become a part of this? And as what, can you give us any insight on what it takes for a group to get featured on Voices Only? Yeah, those are definitely two very different questions. The first year was tough. I had to convince groups to be a part of the process. So a little behind the scenes, the first year, now it's, everyone knows it's a submission process. Right. You submit your music, there's a, a small submission fee, and from there, the music is picked. The very first year, nobody knew what Voices Only was. We could have done it that way, but we would have been limiting ourselves a lot, I think. So the very first year, I was fortunate at that time to be a nominator and a judge for the Contemporary Acapella Recording Awards, the CARAs. So I had access to all of the recorded music. And I told the producer at that time, this is what happening. And I said, can I use this as my listening method, essentially? Oh. I didn't have all this music and then use it to my own sinister deeds. I got permission. <laughs> I got permission from that to say, is it okay if I use it for this? And they were like, okay. sure, no problem. So I sent out invitations to groups. I said, I'm doing this thing. Would you like to be a part of it? I've chosen your song. This is the song I'd like to be a part of this album. And I'd say 80% of the invitations came back with a yes. There were four or five groups that opted out that didn't want to be a part of it. There was more of a financial interest oh, at that point okay. because we're talking about physical albums. This is the way Boca right. did it back then too. You, If you were part of the album, you had to purchase a set number of CDs and that's mm -hmm. how we funded the process. The second year I streamlined it now that we people who knew who we were and it became a submission and it okay. just grew from there. So in 2014, it became a scholastic album. Before that, it was only collegiate. And then a few years ago, we incorporated the any kind of acapella. It can be professional, semi-pro, high school, collegiate. It didn't matter into one encompassing thing. And that's what I think is so amazing about the current iteration is there's really nowhere else on a mainstream level to get anything other than collegiate and high school on this. Right. And so yeah. Voices Only has the pro groups on there, the Swingles, Sons of Pitches, obviously not like a Pentatonix or anything like that, but Impact, mm -hmm. all these amazing, amazing groups. I'm still shocked. I think it was like four years in a row, my acapella idols, Club for Five, were submitting their music for Voices Only. And I was like, wow. I don't even deserve for this to happen. It's like a dream come true. Yeah. And then especially when I talk to other groups or I email other groups and they're like, they don't understand the appeal of being on it because it's purely financial and the thought process for them is why would we give away our music, which I get, mm -hmm. but obviously there's a marketing aspect to it and an indirect right. marketing and an indirect income. 
So yeah, brand awareness in yeah. my in my head is if the Swingles and Club for Five and Fork and all these amazing groups are submitting in the group that only the local people know about are saying it's not worth it. Where's the disconnect? I think that's the first part of your question. Yeah. The second part of the question was it take to be featured on a voices only. There's no magical equation. To be honest, obviously it's very subjective as sure. music yeah. is. And I've never claimed, we've never claimed that this is a best of. These are the tracks that my producers and myself like the best for that mm-hmm. year. And it's not an all-encompassing thing. It may be an amazing solo. It may be an amazing arrangement. It may be amazing production. It may be just great performance. We've selected songs that are not the most technically challenging. There's nothing innovative about them, but there's just something about them that bops or is just like really connects. It just appeals or or it's different, right? It's if something that you don't get a lot of country acapella, you don't get a lot of rap acapella. Mm-hmm. And so it's nice to feature things like that sometimes. Might not be the best song of the year, but it's a chance to feature something different. Yeah, that I like that. It's something that just kind of appeals to you all and just feels and sounds good at the end of the day. And I think this really, for me, the way I process it, a lot of it kind of goes back into that competition aspect, which is so much of what acapella has kind of turned into. You hear best of albums and things like that. So naturally you're thinking a lot of these albums and compilation things that are out are just, they're following some kind of standard on this is what, a group of people behind the scenes are dictating as the best out of somewhere. But you all, there's a different meaning. Like you're saying, it's something that just really kind of moves you in a way. So I, yeah, I, I see it more of, of like a very similar to those. Now that's what I call music compilations. <laughs> those weren't necessarily the best songs of the year. Those weren't the Grammy winners, but those are the, <laughs> you know, those were the hits. There's different music on there. It's a mishmash of what happened that year? What I thought was good. What my producers thought was good. That is a great reference and a great comparison <laughs> like that. And on that note, unfortunately, we do have to take one more quick commercial break. But I promise you, you're not going to want to go anywhere because we have our final segment of Talkapella coming up. We're going to continue speaking with Corey Slutsky right after the break. Want to learn from the best? You should check out Acapella Masterclass, where professionals at the top of their field show you how they became the best and how you can too. Learn from award-winning experts like Kristen Dennehy, Lisa Forgish, Trin Friss-Rounsfeld, Aaron Jensen, Blake Lewis, and more. We discuss topics like arranging, barbershop, beatboxing, composition, looping, social change, and things of the like. Go to acapellamasterclass.com to learn all the details. Acaville, helping you be the best acapella musician you can be. Thanks for joining us back on the show. What an amazing time we've been having just speaking with, learning from Corey Slutsky. So much knowledge and wisdom and so much insight of his experiences with acapella. And that last segment, it was it was great just learning about Voices Only, not only the compilation album that they put out, but as well as what they do as a whole in terms of the master classes, working with groups, helping groups to realize things that they might not have been able to figure out on their own. So that was really great. And now we're going to change gears a little bit and we have some rapid fire questions questions for Corey. We have 10 questions, hopefully, to just throw our guests off guard and, you know, maybe just learn that much more about them. So, Corey, we ask you, are you ready? Uh, not at all. <laughs> uh, great. This, that means this is going to be very entertaining. So, question number one, what is your favorite non-acapella activity? Favorite non-acapella activity? Sports. Playing sports. sports. Baseball, right. softball in particular. Oh, great. I like it. All right. Next question. What's the last thing you Google? How to set up my new monitor. Oh, right. 
Did you get it set up? I'm looking at it right now. Nice <laughs> widescreen, 34 inch. It's beautiful. Ooh, nice. All right. Next question. Favorite band growing up? Favorite band growing up? That would be Billy Joel and Boys to Men. I like it. It's a tie. All right. What was your favorite TV show growing up? Ooh. Let's go with Saved by the Bell. Great choice. Just watch that. Great choice. <laughs> All right. Here's an interesting one. Between the two, which would a 25-year-old Corey choose, Ann Arbor or L.A.? Ann Arbor. Oh, I'm surprised. Midwest. Got to stick with the Midwest. <laughs> all right. Probably the most important out of all the rapid fire questions. Cats or dogs? Cats. I have two cats. cats. Really? Yep. I'm surprised. That's the less popular answer. Interesting. All right. What day in your life would you love to relive? My wedding day. Nice. All right. Your favorite comfort food? Ooh, chocolate. All right. What is your go-to karaoke song? Ooh, I haven't done karaoke in a long time. (laughs) The one that I always did in my 20s was, oh man, what was it called? It was Ario Speedwagon. I can hear it in my head. I keep wanting to say Can't Stop the Feeling, but that's Justin Timberlake. I can't think of it. Ah, that's that's painful. Is it Can't Stop This Feeling? No, that's not it. I feel like I know what song you're talking about, but I don't know the name of it. I'm going to Google it. That can be the the last thing I Googled. (laughs) Ario Speedwagon. Oh man. Can't fight this feeling. Ario Can't fight this feeling. Ah, okay. Good choice. There it is. All right. Final question. What was your very first audition? Of anything? Of anything that you can remember. I don't know if we auditioned for choir in high school. So I'll go with junior year. I auditioned for my first theater show, which was, oh my God, my old brain is not working. Holy moly. Ah, Into the Woods. Into, Into the Woods, junior year of high school. Nice. And an important follow-up question, did you get into the show? I got into the ensemble. Nice. And I was like understudy for like three parts. I was the wolf understudy. I was one of the prince understudies and I was the baker understudy. Man, a man of many talents. Boy, they really liked what you were auditioning with. Okay, I like it. All right. That was great. Hopefully our listeners out there learned a little bit more about Corey. We I always survived. Liked- you did. You made it. That's, that's always our aim here. We always like to wrap up this show with uh, something that our listeners can take away, something that they can impart upon, you know, whatever it is that they're doing or have going on in their life. So, Corey, we asked this question to you. If you could offer our listeners some advice, what would you say? I would say connect, communicate, and collaborate. Don't be stuck being insular within your own group and your own campus, if we're talking about college uh, and high school, but go out there and see what else is happening. Learn from other people. Give them your experience because we all grow together. I wouldn't have gotten where I was without other people helping me along the way. So be willing to ask for help, accept help, and give help. Great advice. We love it. If our listeners wanted to learn more about you, your projects, Voices Only, where could they go? You can find everything for Voices Only at voicesonlyacapella.com. That's two P's, two L's. All the production stuff is at voicesonlyproductions.com. Voices Only on all the social media. Uh, Very excited that I recently brought somebody on board to run my social media, and they're doing an amazing job. So you're going to see a lot more and a lot more exciting stuff on our social medias. So give us a follow on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter to see what we're working on and what we're excited about. We cannot wait to see all that. And we thank you so much for using two P's and two L's. We can't stress that enough, people. Come on, get acapella right. Oh, no, we definitely want to make sure that you go follow all of those channels that Corey just mentioned. Um, At the same time, be sure to go give Talkapella a follow. We're on Twitter, Talkapella, two P's, two L's as well. And go check out our website at talkapella.org. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at thebrianalexbrian with an I. We want to thank Corey Seleski so much for coming on the show today. Uh, We learned a lot. 
it was great just hearing about your journey through acapella and just kind of giving us some things to think about as well as we move forward with our own individual journeys throughout acapella. So thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Let's do it again. Oh, of course. You're invited anytime you like. Uh, so if you need a co-host, I'm available. Oh, ooh, you know what? I'll, I'll keep that in mind, Alicia. You better hurry back before your Hurry back, day. Alicia. Get back here. <laughs> I'm going to take your job. <laughs> right well thanks again um and on that note be sure to go get Acaville radio follow they are the wonderful platform through which we stream through that is going to do it for today's show for everything else stay tuned